Welcome to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of, bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also spectacular photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Howard Carter and the treasure of Tutankhamun's tomb. There will also be more information concerning my novel, Is That Your Final Answer? Now let's get started with our story about Howard Carter and Tutankhamun's tomb. From the age of 17, Englishman Howard Carter worked in Egypt in the field of archaeology. In the late 19th century, with color photography as yet unavailable, Carter was initially hired as an artist in October of 1891 to paint and sketch the discoveries of the archaeological excavations of the period. Eventually trained as an Egyptologist, Carter quickly became prominent and by the age of 25 was named an Inspector General of the Egyptian Antiquities Service. But his prickly personality and stubborn disposition precipitated his resignation in 1905. Recognizing that he probably would accomplish more on his own, Carter then attempted to ally himself with a sponsor and patron who could finance the exorbitant costs of Egyptian archaeological excavations. By 1907, he found just such an individual, George Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. The Earl initially spent time in Egypt to escape the damp British climate, which exacerbated a lung condition. He became interested in archaeology but quickly recognized that as an amateur, he needed to partner with an expert in the field. Initially, this relationship was fruitful, and Carter's excavations near Luxor produced many items of value and interest. It was on Carter's advice that in 1914, Lord Carnarvon obtained the official government concession to dig and excavate within the Valley of the Kings, a region near Thebes that served as the burial place of Egyptian pharaohs for over 500 years. This concession was abandoned by American Egyptologist Theodore Davis, who accepted the conventional wisdom that the Valley of the Kings was devoid of any remaining undiscovered tombs, and that further excavation was a waste of time and money. It was Howard Carter's theory that the tomb of an obscure Egyptian pharaoh named Tutankhamun was not only still undiscovered in the valley, it quite possibly was intact, its contents not pillaged by the grave robbers of ancient times. 
Although the tombs of many of Egypt's rulers were excavated in the Valley of the Kings, no gravesite had ever been located that still retained the treasures that were routinely buried with Egyptian kings. Carter's bold theory convinced Carnarvon to obtain the concession, but World War I and the lack of any notable discoveries diminished the Lord's enthusiasm. By 1922, he notified Carter that that year was to be his last as the financier of the Valley of the Kings excavation. Perhaps driven by this deadline, in November, Howard Carter returned to Egypt after meeting with Carnarvon and quickly reviewed some previously dismissed locations that over time accumulated dwellings and debris that might conceal the access to an undiscovered tomb. On November 3rd, only a few days after Carter resumed his excavation, a water boy either tripped on or noticed what appeared to be a stone step in the rubble being removed by the excavation. Workmen began painstakingly removing rock and soil, clearly revealing a descending staircase. Upon reaching the twelfth step, the top of a doorway was revealed, still sealed and plastered after thousands of years. Two days later, the workmen reburied the stairway and placed giant boulders in front of the entrance to impede any unauthorized entrance. Carter notified Lord Carnarvon via telegram that he had discovered a tomb with intact seals and that Carter would wait upon his patron's arrival from Britain. For two weeks, Howard Carter was forced to ponder what exactly he had discovered. Was this the intact tomb of an Egyptian pharaoh or just another plundered disappointment that would plunge Carter's excavation into final failure? The answer to that question would stun the world and change Howard Carter's life forever. Howard Carter was born on May 9, 1874, in Kensington, London. One of 11 children, his father was a professional painter and illustrator. Artistic from a young age, Howard Carter did not receive much of a formal education, probably because his artistic ability indicated that he would pursue a career in the arts. While in his late teens, a wealthy family connection secured a position with the Egypt Exploration Fund that allowed the young man to assist with reproducing artwork from the interior of tombs located at the excavation site of Beni Hassan. Carter became fascinated with archaeology and Egyptology, and his talent and enthusiasm became evident during his six-year assignment with the EEF's archaeological survey team at Thebes. In 1899, the director of the Egyptian Antiquities Service, Gaston Maspero, appointed Carter Inspector General of Monuments of Upper Egypt. The Antiquities Service was an entity of the Egyptian government formed in 1858 to stop the worldwide export of Egyptian artifacts into the hands of foreign collectors and museums. Because of their expertise, Frenchmen ran the agency until the middle of the 20th century. Carter's immediate focus was on an area known as the Valley of the Kings on the western bank of the Nile across from Thebes. This location was a necropolis or burial ground for the Egyptian rulers during the time period of the 16th to the 11th century BC. Ongoing excavations were underway by both the Antiquities Service and Theodore Davis, an American archaeologist in possession of the only government-awarded concession to excavate in the valley. In 1904, Carter was promoted and relocated to another important archaeological site at Saqqara. 
A strange incident in 1905 abruptly ended Carter's governmental career when a group of drunken and unruly French tourists misbehaved at the Serapium, an ancient temple near Saqqara. Summoned to the scene, Carter was quite confrontational, expelling the visitors and refusing to acquiesce to any of their demands. Well-connected, these individuals protested formally, and when the British Consul General suggested Carter smooth the whole incident over by formally apologizing, he refused. When an apology was made a condition of his further employment, he responded by quitting. His boss, Maspero, was quite distraught over the situation, but he reluctantly accepted the resignation. Carter's stubborn and inflexible response during this incident did not surprise his colleagues. Despite having no alternative for employment, he obstinately refused to give in and stood on what he believed to be principle. In the immediate aftermath of this refusal, Carter was forced to live on dealer commissions on sales of artifacts to wealthy collectors, as well as the occasional purchase of his paintings of Egyptian-related settings. He toiled for three years, attempting to make ends meet until Gaston Masparo intervened. George Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon, was a wealthy British nobleman who loved fast cars, horse racing, and art collecting. In 1903, he was involved in a serious auto accident which permanently damaged his health and necessitated that he spend the winter in a more temperate climate than England. Deciding on Cairo as a suitable destination, the Earl quickly grew bored with the city and set out for Luxor, having secured a minor concession to excavate in a not particularly promising area of the region. He observed his excavations from a screen cage that kept out the dust and insects, accompanied by his wife, who was always formally and properly dressed. His first efforts produced only one significant find, a mummified cat buried in a miniature cat-shaped box. Carnarvon realized that he was a neophyte who needed professional guidance, and Maspero suggested that for the Earl's second season in the desert, he employ Howard Carter as his advisor. Initially, this relationship was mutually satisfying and productive. The team was able to excavate numerous tombs near Thebes, not of royalty, but of prominent citizens and objects of great archaeological interest. At the time, the Egyptian government generally expropriated 50% of any tomb, the other agreed-upon items reverting to the sponsor of the excavation, in this case Carnarvon, who began to amass a formidable collection of Egyptian antiquities. From 1907 to 1912, Carter and Carnarvon's efforts were productive enough to generate a book entitled Five Years' Exploration at Thebes, a record of work done 1907 through 1911. This effort was received enthusiastically, and the two men's stature greatly increased. But the years leading up to World War I were lean, and the expense of Carnarvon's annual excavations began to diminish the Earl's appetite for additional exploration. Both Carnarvon and Carter aspired to uncovering the tombs of more prominent royal figures, and their current options greatly limited that sort of opportunity. This situation changed when the American archaeologist Theodore Davis relinquished the official concession to dig within the Valley of the Kings, an area near Thebes that contained the tombs of many Egyptian pharaohs, their ruins spectacular. But Davis, exhausted by a decade in the desert, believed that there was nothing left to uncover in this particular royal necropolis. 
And while the ancient architecture of many of these royal tombs had spectacular archaeological value, they were uniformly plundered of the numerous items, many of which were fashioned out of gold and decorated with jewels and semi-precious stones that were routinely originally buried within these structures. It was also the belief of Davis and other experts that no tomb containing its original contents would ever be unearthed. Howard Carter, however, thought otherwise. Although Tutankhamun was a very obscure pharaoh, his existence was confirmed when Theodore Davis discovered a small ceramic ceremonial cup bearing the teenage ruler's name. A subsequent small enclosure disgorged several other artifacts bearing Tutankhamun's name, and Davis assumed that this was probably the tomb of a minor and insignificant monarch. This was another of the reasons that the American gave up on the Valley of the Kings and relinquished the concession to Carter and Carnarvon. Work was sporadic during World War I, and while Carter was able to uncover many objects of interest, any tombs he uncovered were previously looted, any remaining contents damaged or broken. Carnarvon stayed in England during the war. Carter spent much of his time in a makeshift house near Thebes, built for him by Carnarvon, in the vicinity of their various excavation sites, accomplishing little and waiting for his patron's return. When the war ended, Carter prepared to resume his search in a specific area in the Valley of the Kings. Decades of digging had produced rubble strewn all over the valley. It was Carter's plan to remove this and other surface debris all the way down to bedrock. Only then could they determine whether or not Tutankhamun's tomb was there somewhere. This was the sole purpose of Carter's quest and Carnarvon's patronage. They still believed that they were correct and the rest of the experts were wrong. At least initially, despite having spent a fortune, Carnarvon remained persuaded that eventually their venture was destined for success. There was so much detritus impeding Carter's process that he needed to construct makeshift train tracks to remove all of the rock and soil that was in his way. Carts crammed with rocks and fragments were pushed manually by workers along the tracks and out of the way. In his first season of excavation following the war, Carter found little except for some ancient workmen's huts that indicated that the area beneath them might be a prime location for exploration. But Carter postponed an examination of this area, and the reasons why have always been a matter of speculation. Carter claimed that the spot was quite close to the excavated tomb of Ramses VI, a site that attracted many visitors, and he did not wish to obstruct their access. Another suggestion was that Carter wanted to keep the area in his back pocket in the event that his patron pulled the plug on Carter's funding. There was a seasonal aspect to archaeological digs in Egypt, the summer temperatures precluding any attempt at excavation. Every year for five years, Carter continued his search for Tutankhamun's tomb. He removed a huge amount of earth, fulfilling his aim to dig right down to the bedrock. But he not only did not find the tomb, he found nothing else, and Carnarvon especially became sensitive to the fact that this collaboration was now the laughingstock of the archaeological world. The early 20s were lean years throughout Europe, and Carnarvon finally decided that he could no longer afford his expensive desert hobby. On top of the lack of any real progress, the informal agreement allowing archaeologists a share in anything they uncovered was no longer in force. A new director of antiquities had replaced Maspero, 
and decreed that any item of value was to be retained by the Egyptian government. Understanding that he was essentially digging for glory and nothing else, Carnarvon, in the summer of 1922, summoned Howard Carter to the family seat at High Clare Castle and gave him the bad news that their partnership would not continue. Typically, Carter stubbornly responded by suggesting that regardless of the impact on the tourist trade, he would spend that season focusing on the area near the tomb of Ramses VI. He even offered to fund the operation himself, as long as Carnarvon publicly remained his partner. Impressed by Carter's determination, Carnarvon reluctantly agreed to underwrite one more season, but both men acknowledged that this was their last attempt to find Tutankhamun's tomb. Carter returned to Egypt on his own, and on November 1, 1922, ordered his team of workmen to begin digging in the area near the ancient huts that he neglected over five years earlier. On the morning of November 4th, upon his arrival at the site, he was informed that what appeared to be a step cut into bedrock had been discovered. One version of the story had a water boy accidentally tripping over the indentation and then bringing it to the attention of a foreman. Carter left that part out of his memoir, but added that after, quote, a short amount of extra clearing revealed the fact that we were actually in the entrance of a steep cut in the rock some 13 feet below the entrance to the tomb of Ramses VI. The manner of cutting was that of a sunken stairway entrance so common in the valley, and I almost dared to hope that we had found our tomb at last, unquote. It took Carter and his workmen two days to reveal what was a stairway that led to something he clearly believed was a tomb, but he also understood that nothing was guaranteed, that this might be just an unfinished, empty, or even worse, the tomb of Tutankhamun, pillaged like all the rest of the valley's necropolis. As the steps were unearthed, one by one, even Carter himself described his feeling as that of a fever pitch of excitement as the stone stairway clearly led to a passageway. After the twelfth step was uncovered, the top of a door became visible. It was sealed tight with plaster. Whatever was beyond that entrance had been undisturbed for thousands of years. Carter quickly identified imprinted seals on the door as that of a royal personage. He also examined the area at the top of the doorway where some of the plaster was gone. He widened the opening and was able to take a small electric light and illuminate the immediate area inside. It was blocked completely with rocks and bricks clearly in an attempt to prevent access. With darkness about to fall on November 5th, Carter decided not to continue any further, despite the probability that removing all of the debris in front of the door would have revealed the additional seals identifying the tomb's occupant. If Carter had any doubt as to whether he was on the verge of a momentous discovery, he certainly did not exhibit any uncertainty in his November 6th cable to Lord Carnarvon. Quote, at last have made wonderful discovery in Valley, a magnificent tomb with seals intact, recovered same for your arrival. Congratulations, unquote. In anticipation of accessing the tomb upon Carnarvon's arrival, Carter completely reburied the staircase and placed giant boulders on top of the location. Knowing that information about his discovery undoubtedly would reach all sorts of entities intent on exploiting such a potential treasure, Armed guards were also stationed at the location. Carter went to Alexandria, awaiting Carnarvon's arrival, 
and by November 23rd, both Carnarvon and his daughter arrived back in Egypt. In his absence, Carter retained another Egyptologist, Arthur Callender, not only to keep an eye on the locale, but to remove the buried debris a few days before Carnarvon's arrival, ensuring that when Carter and the Earl returned to the Valley of the Kings, they could merely punch through the sealed doorway. On November 24th, Callender and the work crew, under the direction of Carter, removed all of the impediments to the steps and continued heading deeper down the staircase. Carnarvon was practically looking over Carter's shoulder every inch of the way. When the 16th and final step was revealed, Carter was able to see all of the seals on the plaster entrance to the tomb. The name of Tutankhamun was clearly visible. Carter was also momentarily taken aback by his further examination that indicated that the door was opened and resealed twice. Official seals evident in different plaster from the seals of the pharaoh that were in the central part of the door. Again, Carter could only wonder if his tomb was another barren, rifled repository. On November 25th, Carter began the process of removing the door itself. A deliberately assembled barrier consisting of rocks arranged carefully and then covered from top to bottom with plaster. This revealed a descending passageway that was just as wide as the entrance, but seven feet high. It was jammed with rubble with two distinct shades of rock that also indicated that the passageway was entered subsequently after its initial completion. Broken pottery, jars, and decorated vases were also found within the rubble, with various names of other rulers besides Tutankhamun imprinted on these items. Carter wondered if this was an indication that he was excavating nothing more than a repository for various items hidden away for security, as opposed to an individual tomb. By the end of November 25th, Carter had painstakingly penetrated more than 20 feet of the passageway, but still had not reached the end of the orifice. However, on the following day, the 26th, the archaeologist later wrote, quote, The day following was the day of days, the most wonderful I have ever lived through, and certainly one whose like I can never hope to see again, unquote. The morning consisted of removing more material from the passageway, but by the afternoon, 30 feet into the corridor, Carter uncovered a second door, much like the first. It also contained seals with the name of Tutankhamun. Carefully, Carter made a small hole in the upper left portion of the door, and peering inside, he could see nothing but darkness. He then poked the opening with an iron rod, but this time, instead of more rubble, there was only space, indicating that the area behind the door was cleared. Carter was meticulous enough to place a lit candle into the opening to detect any noxious gases that might lurk inside. When the candle stayed lit, indicating appropriate oxygen levels, the archaeologist felt it was safe enough to lean through the opening and look at the interior. Later, he described this amazing process. Quote, At first I could see nothing, the hot air escaping from the chamber causing the candle flame to flicker. But presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, and gold. Everywhere, the glint of gold. For the moment... An eternity, it must have seemed to the others standing by, I was struck dumb with amazement, and when Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, Can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words, Yes, wonderful things. 
Then widening the hole a little further so that we both could see, we inserted an electric torch. Surely never before in the whole history of excavation had such an amazing sight been seen as the light of our torch revealed to us." Unquote. The largest objects in what turned out to be an antechamber were two life-size statues of a king facing each other, dressed in golden kilts and golden sandals, the royal headdress featuring the cobra-studded forehead. Between the two statues were three elaborately carved wooden couches in the shape of different animals, a gilded lion the most prominent and noticeable. But there were many smaller objects that eventually stood out. Alabaster vases, thrones, small decorated casket-like boxes, even chariots decorated with gold and complex inlaid design. After both men recovered their senses, Carter observed that not only was there no mummy, the statues were standing as sentinels before another clearly plastered over doorway. Somewhere beyond the next opening, based on the contents in the antechamber, Carter was reasonably confident that they would find the mummified body of a pharaoh and the accompanying ceremonial splendor. By now, according to Carter's account, evening was descending, and it was time to lock a makeshift gate that was placed by the team in the first door to the passageway. At least that's what Carter maintained in his account of the discovery. Other subsequent more critical versions allege that actually at some point during that evening or shortly thereafter, Carter, Carnarvon, and the Lord's daughter secretly broke down the sealed wall of the antechamber to establish whether Tutankhamun and his sarcophagus were actually still there. This was the first of many allegations of deceit or deliberate disinformation on Carter's part that eventually earned him great resentment in Egypt and controversy that still rages today. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Howard Carter. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books, The Discovery of the Tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter and A.C. Mace, The Shadow King by Joe Marchant, and The Complete Tutankhamun by Nicholas Reeves. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical, and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. And by the way, if you're looking for some hilarious and entertaining summer reading, pick up a copy of my recently released new novel, Is That Your Final Answer? You can do that at Amazon.com. <laughs>